0: All right. Well, this is the part three of this little mini-series that we've been doing, and I'll keep talking until I come out of that tube, and uh, we'll see where it goes. It's always fun coming here because one of the things that happens, I don't usually share what I'm talking about specifically with the worship leaders or anything, and um, <clears throat> and mainly because I often don't know what I'm gonna be talking about until we get close. But it's always amazed me every time I come here, somebody says something that fits right in line. And even the worship this morning was, even though we, we lived together, we didn't really talk about what we're doing. And, uh, but there's, there's things, and maybe I'm just sensitive to it, but there's things that we sung about this morning that we worshiped about that is the theme for today. I can sw- switch that's still good. I can switch mics. I grew up in French territory, so I like to talk with my hands, but uh if I have to hold a mic, I can do that. Keep going. Keep going? All right. Okay. <laughs> I served for a while as an air traffic controller, and, and you have to get used to the language and the hearing. You have to kind of tune your ear a little bit to it. So it's going to be like that today. I'm going to sound like an air traffic controller until you kind of get used to what it sounds like, and then it'll be crystal clear to you. Um, we've been talking about this this pattern that, that I saw that, that we go from communion with God, which is where we're meant to be, and out of that communion, there's a, a commissioning, a kind of a a thing that we're to do. It's not just to to be communion. There's something to, that we do with that. And then from that commissioning, there's a, the choices that we make, and we choose what we're going to do. And as we choose to be obedient to the Lord, it strengthens that com- that, that communion, and it strengthens that commissioning, and we're, we see our lives being fulfilled. But what we always do, and it it's inevitable that we're going to do it, just either by intention or, or inattention, but we slip into uh, deviating from what God would have us to do, and, and we there's consequences of that, and sometimes there are major consequences, sometimes more often than not, they are minor ones and minor deviations, and at those times, we're called to repent, to, to just change course, and it's not that it's always sin, but to come back into that place of communion, and when you're in that communion, we get back to the commissioning, and then sometimes we let it go too far, and we end up in this What we would say is a state of confusion that we're in personally or in a state of chaos if 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 we've all gone astray and it affects everything around us and even in those times where we think god would write people off in that state that they've deviated so far god always brings people back he gives a pathway and the choice is to, to come back in line, back into communion. And God has a way of, of initiating those things. And that's always the key, is that, they, that we see the heart of God is always to initiate that restoration to come back into communion, because that's where he wants us to be. And so we looked at Adam up to the time of Noah, and then we looked at Noah up to the time of, of Moses and, and the nation of Israel and even the exile. And now we're into the third part, which is the life of Jesus. And that's where we want to begin this morning. The story that amazes me is in Luke chapter 2, when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus' baby, this baby, to, to the temple to be blessed. And they meet this elderly gentleman by the name of Simeon. And Simeon, who has been praying and interceding uh, and, and waiting uh, for, for the restoration of Israel, He immediately recognizes this child, not because the child has like in our paintings with the little glow around his head. He recognized him because the spirit says the spirit in him quickened him to what was going. And he begins to celebrate. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 29, uh, Simeon says this, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word because, verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. Now, Jesus hasn't done anything yet. He's still a, a child. But, but Simeon sees this prophetically, that this is the, the restoration. And, and, and this is a key line that he brings out. For the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. That he says this, this salvation is not only for, for Israel, but it's also for the Gentiles. Remarkable statement that the holy spirit prompts him and then there's john the baptist and john the baptist was a miracle himself he's a prophet preparing the way for the messiah he's described as i am the voice of one crying in the wilderness make straight the way of the lord and he encounters jesus and and he says this he says i have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of god again before jesus has done anything He recognizes that. He's baptized. He goes into ministry. And then Mark 11 records the events that we refer to as Palm Sunday, it's a celebration of time just at the, at the beginning of Passover, just as Passover week is about to begin. He rides in on, a, on the donkey, and people are there for, for the gathering of the, the sacrificial lambs. That was also a parade event that would take place. And Jesus comes in at that time while all the crowds are there, and they begin to, to exclaim, or exclaim these, these praises to him where they say, Hosanna, which means, O oh, save, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our father, David. It's an interesting statement. And they make that statement to him as he rides in. But in Matthew 26, we start to see, and you know the story, that the religious leaders begin to actively look at a way to stop Jesus. That the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they make this drastic decision to eliminate Jesus, because he's a threat to what they're doing. The priests are, are put off by the audacity that He's ministering to people, and there's transformation outside of when they say it should take place. The Pharisees are upset because he's teaching the word, teaching the Torah in a way that is, is remarkable. And it goes against what they're wanting him to teach. And the Sadducees are put off by the fact that he won't play along with the political system. He won't cooperate. And he's disturbing what they're trying to establish. And we begin to see all this start to unfold in that week. And then in Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, we have this part that we call the Last Supper. What it really was was a Passover meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples at the front end of the Passover, not when people would traditionally celebrate it. So he kind of jumps in as soon as the sun goes down, which is the end of the day, Jesus jumps in at that point to celebrate Passover when most people would be celebrating it at the end of the day. And in this Passover celebration with his disciples, this very intimate time, of remembrance of the, of the deliverance out of Egypt, out of slavery. It's a very ritualistic Seder meal. Each part has, has words to be said and, and things to be sung. Each part has, has symbolism. And, and Jesus deviates in, in two pieces of the Passover meal. And remember, every one of them would have grown up doing this. They could recite the words by heart. But he comes to the part where there's this, this bread. And you take the first piece of bread and you use that, and you take the second piece of bread and you use that, but the third piece of bread you would always leave in the pouch. But Jesus takes that piece of bread. And those disciples are all of a sudden realizing this isn't what you're supposed to do. But he says, this is my body that's being broken for you. And he takes this bread that no Jewish person had ever eaten, because it wasn't part of their, pardon, wasn't part of the, the Passover meal. But it was preserved there. And Jesus took and he broke it and he passed it to them and said, this is my body. And then he, he takes and it says in, in our English translations, and I would capitalize this part, The cup. And it identifies that it was a special cup. It was the cup they called the cup of Elijah. It was a cup that they would set in anticipation that Elisha would show up and he would take this. And when he would take this cup, the deliverance of Israel would take place. But Jesus takes this cup and he holds it up and he says, this is my body or this is my blood that's being shed for you. And he talks about this new covenant. So he gets their attention. And now the, the atmosphere in the room kind of probably changes a little bit because it's like, what's happening? What's going on? And, and in the end of Matthew, Matthew 26, it, it puts this little line in there, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And, 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 and I, was, I, I think I've read that before, and it, 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 it never really jumped out at me until I began to think about it, and I go... I hadn't thought about Jesus singing before. Think about Jesus teaching. Think about Jesus praying. Never thought about Jesus singing. But it says when they had sung a hymn. Now what they would have sung is, is not a hymn like we know from our hymn books, or the ones we used to have, but it would be from the Psalms. The Psalms were their hymn book. And there were Psalms for Passover. Psalms 113 to 118 and Psalms 136 are all Passover hymns. They would sing those as part of the, the evening. And they sang one of those. And when you, when you look at it, the psalms are the hymn book. The psalms are the songs that they would sing. And they weren't really read in the, in the Hebrew. They were sung. Some of you might remember, this was from years ago, the movie The Hiding Place. Remember that one? Corey Ten Boom and and hiding the Jews during World War II and there's a there's a part in the movie I, I i love this part um the guy who was i think he was a professor he was kind of the uptight one and always criticizing everybody else and they were celebrating i think it was hanukkah and they're sitting around the table and they're all secret they there and the the ten boons are, are hosting this special meal for them and they're all gathered in this this upper upper room at night and they're eating in this this professor goes oh he goes we can't end the night without the, the blessing and he he goes into this psalms but he drops his voice and he sings it with this kind of a baritone this rhythmic hebrew dialect and and the scene shows him kind of the ten boons kind of feeling a little uneasy not because he was singing in hebrew but because he was singing quite loudly and they were afraid of what who might hear And when it ends, the the father tamboon says that that was beautiful, but does it have to be so loud? And this professor looks at him and goes, Is there any other way? And you see what they brought out there was the Hebrew element of that. That when you sung the Hebrew the Psalms, you sung them with confidence, with boldness, because they said we're singing the Word of God. And that's what they would have done that night sung this song boldly as the Passover lamb. And then he goes out into the garden. And you know how the story goes. And in Matthew 26, it has Jesus praying in that garden. And you feel the anguish that he has because in verse 30, it says, if it be possible, let this cup, this, this task that is before me pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he goes back down to to verse 42, and he repeats almost the same thing. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. But when he's done praying, there seems to be this willful determination that is in him. And he goes back to the disciples and the disciples who've come with him, but they can't go this part of the journey with him Where does he find them? Sound asleep. And you go, yeah, of course, because they're tired. It's the middle of the night. And you can read it that way, and that's the way we, unless you were here last week when we talked about the covenant. And you remember the covenant with Abram? And God says, I want to make a covenant with you, but I need you to go to sleep. Because I need to put one as a representative for you in its place. And it seems as though the scriptures just bring that piece back in to say, hey, remember this story back in Genesis chapter 15? I want want you to remember that when we go into this part. That there's a substitute taking the place of mankind. And you're able to rest and allow it to take place. And then Jesus gets to the point where he gets them kind of up and they're ready to go and he says, rise, let's go. Because my my deceiver or my uh, betrayer has come. In other words, it's, it, we're, we're, we're on this now. And it seems in that writing, you can't read necessarily the tone, but there's this, this fierce determination in Jesus to go, I'm fully aware of what this task is, what's about to happen. We're about to step into this. So it says, if you jump the story over to Luke chapter 23, Jesus is interrogated by the Jews. He's interrogated by the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But they can't pass final judgment on him, so they have to send him to to the Roman governor, to Pilate. And Pilate, as a governing official there, looks and investigates Jesus, and he can't find any legal grounds by Roman law to sentence him to death. But it says that they were... The voices outside, they were urgent, demanding with loud voices that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So what gets knit together here is is the Jews, the Jewish officials, uh, they they sentence him to death, and then the Gentiles officials, they sentence him to death. That you can't look and say one is to blame and, and not the other, both Jews and Gentiles. Both are complicit in sentencing Jesus to death. So as Jesus goes through this next part of the journey, he's going, carrying the burden of the Jews and the Gentiles. The sentence of both. And then you go to Matthew 27, with Jesus on the cross. And you have those those haunting words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we build whole theologies around this line. And what this means and what, the, what was happening. We know that the journey to the cross at this point was, was horrific beyond what we could, could even imagine that Jesus is on the cross suffering such pain that it's unimaginable to us. That we almost look and say in that physical agony we can understand how we could feel my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we remember this is the Messiah. This is the Christ. Now, he says three other things before you get to this part. One, he says, first, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Kind of a blanket statement, not directed to anyone in particular. And you see the heart of the Messiah coming out in that. And then the thief that was beside him said, do you remember me? And he says, this day, uh, you will meet, meet with me in paradise. Again, the heart of a Messiah. And then the third thing he said was he looked down where, where John, is the only disciple that, that, that came, the rest scattered. John is there with, with Jesus' mother, Mary. And he looks down at John and he says, this is your mother. And he looks at Mary and says, and, and this is your son. In other words, look, look after each other. Again, the heart of compassion, this heart of, of love then you have those haunting words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I think I, I said it right from the very beginning that uh, when we read our, our scriptures online, it's, it's, it's good. We can jump to different translations. I use it all the time. But one of the things you miss out is, is in the written Bibles, there's those little squiggly letters that sometimes pop up, the little superscript letters and sometimes it's a footnote, and online it will have that, and you know, it'll say some manuscripts say this, or some manuscripts say, or it can be translated this way. That's your footnotes. But then there's those little squiggly letters that you have to kind of look down and decipher, and they're called cross references, and they take you somewhere else in the Bible. Now there's a lot of them, so you don't, you're not jumping around all the time. But sometimes it's significant. And when you get to this line, My God, My God, why have you forsaken me? There's a little letter in your written Bible, and it. And you have to look down and find that verse in that chapter, and it says, Psalms 22. So, sometimes it's worth following the path. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? takes you back to Psalms 22, so let's go back to Psalms 22. Because you want to know that little saying that was written in my Bible, it was written in my grandmother's Bible, and I wrote it in my Bible when I first started is the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. You've heard that before? It's been around a long time. So if you want to understand the New Testament, you often have to pop back in the Old Testament. If you want to understand the Old Testament, you often have to pop into the New Testament. And this line, this one verse, this utterance of Jesus on the cross, takes us back to Psalms 22. In Psalms 22 before it even starts, has this kind of a pretext, and it says, to the, to the choir master. According to the Doe of the Dawn, or the, the tune, I remember your old hymn books that would say, sung to the tune of, and they would just take the same tune and change the words to something completely different. But you knew the tune. You just had to sing the right words. And this was the psalms that was written about a thousand years before the cross embedded in that hymn book. And in the Psalms, there are Psalms of celebration. There are Psalms of mourning and lament. And there's the Psalms of remembrance where they would talk about events that have taken place that they wanted to remember. And the Passover Psalms are are some of those ones of remembrance. This one, Psalms 22, sung to the tune of the Doe and the Dawn, or the Doe of the Dawn, is a song written by David. And David has a unique style that he writes that you can see where he starts off and he he talks about kind of the situation, then he has truth, and then he goes back into what the situation is, and then he talks about the the feelings, and then he comes out of that. In Psalms 22, this song that your text will link you back to goes to verse 1, and verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. Now think of the, the man Jesus on the cross, experiencing all that he experienced. An innocent man that that is found guilty and beaten and to near death and hung on a cross in a horrific manner. You can kind of understand why a man, Jesus, might look and say, This isn't fair. Where's my God that I've been serving? You, you think of the, the stress of this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's, he's sweating drops of blood, the anguish that he's feeling even before the whole event takes place. You can understand how, how somebody under that much duress may go, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? May feel utterly betrayed. But this is Jesus. And this is the plan of redemption that the Father had laid out from the beginning of time. So maybe we need to take a second look and think of this. Again, this is something for you to think about and dwell on maybe for a while, as much as I've had to dwell on it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We either look at that as being a statement and we form a theology that God turned his back on him and forsake him, Or, we look at this in the context that it's written in, that it's the opening line of a song. And that Jesus, the Messiah, on the cross, with all the breath that he can muster, is worshiping. Opening line of a song on the cross, not just singing a psalm, but worshiping, using the words of Scripture that were embedded in that book a thousand years before this event took place. It's an interesting consideration. Look at verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. See that opening line, my God, what Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We may look and say, say yes, but yet, that next line is, Yet in this emotion that I'm feeling, you are holy. You are enthroned in the praises of Israel. Yet in spite of what what Jesus is feeling in the moment, he declares through worship an element of truth. What is true because they, they, they saw the deliverance of God throughout their history. It's Passover week, it's Passover day. And this song is bringing out the remembrance of all the deliverance that God had provided to the ancestors. That line of in in you our fathers trusted, they they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and you rescued David has this way of of starting with a lament and then then in the midst of the lament, just bringing out this truth. And this Psalms brings that out. And just because something true doesn't mean it changes the situation. Because you go to verse 6. Verse 6 to 8, and Jesus says, All who seek me, mock me. And it says there, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. We can know that God's holy. We can know that others trusted him and and they were delivered. We can know that others cried out and they were saved. But when you're the one in that situation, and you feel, as, as, as probably Jesus felt, those words of that psalm, but I'm no longer a man, I'm a worm. I'm utterly defeated. I feel worthless. I've been beaten and abused and shamed and stripped and left humiliated. The truth is the truth, but this is where I am right now. What did people say at the foot of the cross? It says the Pharisees came by and said, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Without even knowing it, they follow the script. And, and it's important that the, the writers who recorded that, those events on the cross, that they, they just put that line in there just coincidentally. So that when you go investigate and you look back, you go, Wow, that's a, that's interesting. Verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. Again, a statement of fact and and of faith about God's watchful eye on, on David, but also on Jesus from the time that he was born. And you read that story in Luke too and, and how, how he was born and, and there is the, the, the will to, to execute him. But in a dream, Joseph was warned to flee and they left and they went to Egypt. The, you see the hand of the father protecting him from the time he was, was born. That the words that come out in this Psalms are the words that reflect Jesus' life. And in that place, when you begin to, to go from this, this despair of, of where I am emotionally, and we bring it back around and we begin to think about what God has done in my life, where the hand of God was seen in my life, and, and we see this, this Psalms bringing this out, that, that he can kind of come to the point where he could say, be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help and all those words that are part of that psalms they may not all be coming out of Jesus's mouth but there seems to be this flow within him that it's like a whisper to the father with the last bit of energy that he has that i need you i need your deliverance now the father protected him as a child that there's a certain amount of confidence that Jesus would have to say be not far from me. It's speaking out of his desperation. And then you go into verse 12, and it's kind of this, this cryptic little passage where it says, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. And we kind of look at that and we go, I don't, I don't get that. Let's just skip over that part. And I think the first time I ever looked at this, I did skip over this part because I went, I, in, in my spirit, I knew what it was, but I couldn't intellectually or, or articulate what it was. I didn't understand it. Because Bashan is a region. It's a region north of Israel. It's a region near Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was not known as a a righteous place. It was pagan worship. Believed that there was the, the entry to the underworld. So they celebrated that. It was a pagan place. So when Jesus, this rabbi, good teacher, takes these young boys, teenage boys, up to Caesarea Philippi, That wasn't a nice place to go that wasn't where good little boys went but he goes up there and he takes them with him and it's that where he stands there and he makes that that statement that you know because you've quoted it many times on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail well he doesn't say that in the safety of Jerusalem he says that in the base of Bashan the mountain you remember what a mountain is It's the dwelling place of God, but it wasn't the God of Israel. It was the God who opposed Israel. That God takes these, Jesus takes these disciples up to that very place and he makes the most profound thing about the church. And he makes it at the doorstep of the enemy. Now, Bashan is this kind of a strange word because it was a territory. But what they've been able to do, especially with the Dead Sea Scrolls, is they've been able to look and understand that word a little bit better. And that word, not all every word was a Hebrew word. Some words were other, from other cultures that the Hebrew people incorporated in. And that word Bashan comes from, from another ancient culture. And that word Bashan means, you ready for this? To be dragon or snake-like in appearance doesn't mean anything unless you were here for part one. We talked about the serpent. Said so it wasn't necessarily a snake. That is a symbolic language to say one who is snake-like, and that's a repeated thing all the way through, either snake-like or dragon-like, all the way through the Bible. So when you see the, the bulls of Bashan, and you know that, you begin to realize what, he's, what is being described here is the demonic spirits under Satan are present, and they're encircling him. And the Psalms 22, if it reflects what Jesus is singing and what he's experiencing during the crucifixion, then he's looking out and he's saying, in the spiritual realm, I can see the demonic forces have surrounded me. Haven't touched them, but they're surrounding him. The bulls of Bashan, the demonic powers under Satan, surround him in the spiritual realm. And then you go to verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. That's a crucifixion. That's the physical result of a crucifixion. The physical description of this person in the physical realm. Now, it just talked about what's happening in in the... in the spiritual realm, now it's talking about what's happening in the physical realm, and in the physical realm, his body is under attack. And from the cross, the people heard, I'm thirsty. But the words that get spoken there is, my strength is dried up or my mouth is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. And somebody said, he's thirsty, go get him some wine. And he didn't drink it because he said, I will not drink from this cup again until you see me in eternity. You see, there are things in the natural realm and there are things in the supernatural realm. In the natural realm, his body is is being tormented with pain and agony. In the spiritual realm, the, the, the demonic forces have encircled him. And he is at the center of that, pressing through. Verse 16. They divide my garments among them. Does that sound familiar? And for my clothing they cast lots. So he's under assault spiritually by the powers of Satan. He's under assault physically by the agony of the crucifixion. He's under assault emotionally by the, the shame and the torment of the what it describes there as the dogs that are nipping and biting at him all along, the sneers and the mockery and the jabs that he's encountering, like little dogs just nipping at him. You would think it would be too much for Jesus to bear you would think that that opening line really means, I feel abandoned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But, but, verse 19, but you, O Lord, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Or you could translate that, but I know, I know you're not far off. Oh, you, my helper, come quickly to my aid. Jesus knows this to be true. He knows the Father's not far off. He, he, probably better yet, he, he trusts that the Father's not far off. And there's this, this plea, this statement of, of, of I, 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 really, I, I, I know you're going to do this, but I really need you to deliver me and deliver my soul from the sword. Now, that's an interesting line. Because, because, again, if we equate that with what Jesus is experiencing, the soul, the, the essence of who he is, hasn't yet been destroyed. The sword hasn't pierced his soul. His soul is still intact, but he knows it's in jeopardy. You ever been there in your own life? when you feel like you're on your last strain, but, but there's just this remnant, something is still alive in there. Something's still holding on. A- enough holding on to, to hold out in faith, to hold out in trust, to have a glimmer of hope. But you go right to the brink. And what does the song say? And, and I would contend, what does Jesus sing, either out loud or, or at least in his mind? What is he worshiping in this moment on the cross? I will tell of your name to my brothers. I will praise you. And there's this turn that takes place right here in the song. And there's a turn that I believe takes place on the cross right at this moment. These are not the words of someone who's defeated because he's saying, I will praise you. Why? Because in this moment, the demonic spirits have to recoil. They have to recoil at the words of the strength and fortitude that begin to come out. If you're an old wrestling fan and you were a Hulkamaniac, you know how they would build that up. The Hulk would be almost defeated. Almost out. And then you'd see just that twitch. You know, the hand would come up, and you're like, I know what's happening. He's not defeated. And then he would rally, and he would stand, and he would win. This is that moment where off the mat comes the hand that begins to quiver. That there's still strength inside because look at verse 24 verse 24 for he has not despise or abhorred, regard with disgust the afflictions of the afflicted where do we get that concept that god turned his back on his son because he couldn't bear the sin where do we get that from why do we say that because if God can't look at, at, at His Son who has the sins of the world, then how can the Father look at us at any moment? But this psalm written a thousand years before Jesus kind of it, it, it typifies everything that Jesus is experiencing on that cross. And He's saying, I know I have not been forsaken. I know my Father has not turned His back on me. I know thy Father has not despised the afflictions of the afflicted. God the Father did not leave his son abandoned to the physical pain nor the spiritual pain. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him, it says there. This is the line that would have driven those Satan uh, minions scrambling. Because what they perceived as the eminent defeat of Jehovah, God's plan for redemption of mankind is all of a sudden turning. And something's happening. Verse 25. This is just icing on the cake. For from you comes the praises in the great congregation, the great congregation, that, that throne room of God. It was a place, this great congregation is a place that we read in Job that the accuser stood and said, what about Job? The great congregation is that place in Revelation where it says the accuser was there. And that's what Stephanie shared, unbeknownst that ties in with this, but they overcame by the word, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony in the great congregation. He says the afflicted, or the psalm says the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. There'll be a banquet table in the midst of their enemies. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. There's powerful words of declaration. And it's coming out in direct opposition to what the enemy's trying to do. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. It sounds like Philippians chapter 2. A little chapter after what Carlin read. Therefore God God has highly exalted him, talking about Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That Psalms. And what I would say, what Jesus had on his heart and his mind in, in the crucifixion our prophetic statements about what would be, about the new covenant. Then verse 29, all the prosperous, all the richly blessed of the earth will feast and worship. All those that, remember the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those, blessed are the weak, uh, poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. That's, that's kind of emblematic of what, what he's talking about here. All those who trust in the, in the, in the Lord are blessed. All those that, that are prosperous, they're, they're richly blessed, of so the earth will feast and they will worship. Posterity, the remembrance of a person and the moment will go on for generations. This is a point in human history where everything changes. This is the, this is the pivot point, the cross The death of Jesus is the pivot point of of everything in history. And it's a moment that is forever remembered, that changes everything. It's that watershed moment. It's the whole purpose of Jesus. And then you get to the last verse. They, They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn, that he has done it or another translation, it is finished. It is finished is the words that John wrote down in chapter 19 as the last words of Jesus. That coincidentally is the last line of this Psalms where the first line was quoted. On that cross, it would be hard to get a breath out, but those words that came out were heard. And they were linking back to the Psalms because it goes don't forget this to understand what's happening right now. The thought of Jesus worshiping on the cross and well kind of defies our whole understanding of it. And it's something for you to think about and again it may take it for what it's worth. But I would contend that Jesus wasn't overcome with despair that he didn't hang on that cross and go, oh, this was a mistake. That when he prayed in the garden and said, not my will but yours be done, he knew exactly what he was about to step into and he stepped into it with fierce determination, but he stepped into it with the word that was given for that moment to take those, that psalms in particular and hold on to that as the thought that he would have upon that cross. To literally worship through song. Now here's a remarkable thing about the Bible. And again, it doesn't work electronically as much as it does physically. Physically that you read Psalms 22, which is the the picture of the cross, this horrific moment with Jesus, right to the very end where it says it is finished, or it's done, it's settled. And then you figuratively turn your page or go across the page. And what Psalm comes after Psalms 22? Psalm 23. And what does Psalm 23 say? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. As you see the work of Jesus on the cross, And you consider all the work of of God the Father from Genesis all the way to the end of Malachi. How he constantly went back to Israel to seek to redeem them. How he constantly went back to mankind to show them a way. How he was constantly restoring. And as you read the scriptures, you have to know this. That the heart of the Father hasn't changed that the heart of the Father is the same for you. That the heart of the Father is to have you in communion with Him. And that when you deviate from that, the Father looks for ways to bring you back by His Spirit. That it's because of what Jesus did on the cross that you, in all the situations of your life, can skip over chapter Psalms 22 And go to Psalms 23 and say, because of that, here's where I am. I'm dearly loved. I'm protected. I'm led by the Spirit. So you see all this at work. And you have to know this. And you have to remember this. Whatever's going on in your life, things are not out of control. They are in process. God always does amazing work and you are an amazing work. Trust him with your life. Trust him with your future. Trust him to restore what's been broken and lost in your life. Trust him to guide you and to guard you. And if you deviate from the path, don't beat yourself up repent and come back if you've drifted in your relationship with and you get into the state where you don't know what's going on and you're in chaos and confusion look for the things that he's laying out in your life around you to bring you back because i guarantee you it's there and you take that deep breath and you say lord i want to be in your presence And watch what he begins to do. And from that place of communion, then you can begin to hear again that commissioning of what he has for your life and what he wants to do in you and what he wants to do through you. And and as you even go through very difficult situations, that enhances that desire to know the presence of the Lord and to walk in it. And as you hear and obey, it strengthens that communion. It strengthens the confidence that you have. And that becomes the whole New Testament. And that's why in this series, it's this pattern. I go, I I can only get you up to this point, but but I think there's a whole other series of of what comes next. Because when you go to the Romans, in Romans chapter 8, and I love chapter 7, and the beginning of chapter 8, favorite passage in the Bible. Romans 8, verse 3 said, for God has done. And if that's not underlined in your Bible, it should be. Because that's the pattern of God that he initiates. This is for you and for me, for those who are out there, outside of the church. It's for everyone. It's for those that we love and those we don't like so much. It's for those that are dear to us, and it's for those who have even harmed us and hurt us. And the fullness comes as we walk according to there in the last line, as we walk not according to the flesh, the way we think we should do it, but according to the spirit of what his word says. That's our battle. You know, I I say that we'll deviate. We we will. It's not that we have to, but we will because that draw of the flesh is so strong. And it's going to remain strong until the draw of the Spirit becomes stronger. So as a church, you come together and you nurture that in one another. You forgive one another. You bless one another. You encourage one another. That's the whole New Testament. Why? So that you can stay in that place of communion so that you can know the will of the Lord and you can do it. And you're led by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Because the most horrific thing in all of human history, if, if Jesus as a man can be on that cross and have the fortitude of might to hold fast, then whatever you're facing, you can do the same by following the same pattern of putting your faith in the loving Father that is your deliverer. So we looked at this series called the return to communion. I changed the title around I had from chaos to com- communion but it didn't fit on the didn't fit right I had to ch- make the longer word first. But then when I did I went I went well that's that's more the way it is. We we I I've been a pastor for 35 years. I thought at one point I'd become perfect, and then I could be really confident in what I was doing. And to be honest, you, you stand here and go, half time, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And that struggle to stay in that place of communion when you get busy, and you get distracted. But out of the chaos, we can come back to communion. And what's the enemy going to do? The enemy's going to do everything he can to keep you in confusion. He's going to do everything he can to say that you're not good enough. That's the accuser of the brethren in Revelation. And we overcome by Psalms 22. And we overcome by Psalms 23. By the blood of the Lamb and our confession of faith in Jesus. Aligning ourselves with his word and not with our feelings. And that's where we go with that. We're going to pray. We're going to close. And, and do you guys have a song? Yeah, you guys, come on up now. And uh, one of the things I love about this church is, is you guys open it up for prayer. And I want to encourage you. You might just need just that, almost that fierce determination rise up in you. Where you kind of reaffirm your, your commitment to, to stay the course. You look for the Father's deliverance you got good people here that will pray for you and just strengthen you in that. So let me pray for you, then we'll have this song, and then we'll let, uh, let you guys close this off. Lord, your word is, wow. Your word is powerful. And When we explore it, it, it just fascinates us that, that it keeps getting deeper and deeper. Lord, we thank you. And we pray that we'll have humble hearts. That we'd be willing to tune our ear to what your spirit is saying to us. That, Lord, we get really good at distinguishing the voice of the enemy, and we would take captive every thought that brings itself against your word. And we'll press in. And we'll draw on your word for our time of strength when we need it. And Lord, we thank you more than anything else for Jesus. For that sacrifice. For the tenacity to bear that for our place. And we thank you for those words of Psalms 23. That you are our shepherd. And we can trust you completely. So Lord, as we worship you. As we pray to you. We know you hear us and we shake off all of those lies of the enemy, we come against all the oppression of the enemy, and we want your spirit to flood into our hearts that we would overflow with your love, with your grace, with your mercy, and with your word. And use us for your work, Lord Jesus, and use this church for your glory in this community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.